Okay, thank you, Ron. Uh, Bruce, for helping out with that. Did you get a chance to go by the uh, mystery room and just uh, yeah, no, no. go in there? Okay. Let's uh, take our Bibles and go to Jeremiah chapter 3 today. Jeremiah chapter 3, and I'm going to ask you to help me with the lesson. Jeremiah chapter 3. I enjoy words. I enjoy thinking about what words mean. And one of the words we use often, or at least when I was growing up, one of the words I heard often and I wondered what it meant was this word backslidden or backsliding. Maybe you've heard someone say, that that person, they're just backslidden. Yeah. It came up this week, uh, my wife and I were talking about a friend and, and the comment was, that person is just backslidden. And so I was wondering, are you, do you need me, Ron? Okay. i just wondering, uh, not wondering, I've, I've thought about it in the past. What does that word mean? And as I was reading, even in the last couple of weeks, my Bible reading took me to Jeremiah. And here in Jeremiah 3 and 4, and in the first part of verse 5, we see this word backsliding and backslidden come up. And so let's talk about what we mean by that. Now, this is a good word. It's, it, it paints a good picture for us. When I lived in Oregon, the church I was at there, we would climb... Mount St. Helens. Mount St. Helens, you remember back in 81, top blew off. And uh, it went from, I think it was 11,000 feet, now it's about 8,000 feet. And you climb to the top. When you get to the last four or 500 feet uh, before you get to the top, there's this ash field. And uh, it's just really fine dust and ash and sand. And you stick your foot into that dust and ash and sand, and it, it, it's, it's pretty fine. So your feet go in a couple inches. And then you slide backwards because gravity carries you backwards. And so you put your foot in again and you slide backwards. And it takes two or three times longer to climb up that last few hundred feet than it would be um, normally because you keep sliding back. And that's this idea. You're, you're not making progress towards your goal because you keep sliding back. So here in Jeremiah chapter 3, we're going to ask the question, what are the symptoms of a backslidden Christian? And we're going to start here in uh, Jeremiah 3, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 6. You can read the others, the other verses ahead of that. But Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6, and we'll just read through this passage and into chapter 4. And as we get to a verse, I'll stop. We'll reread that verse, and I'll ask you what symptom of the backslidden Christian that we see in this verse, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6. The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? There's that word backsliding. She has gone up upon every mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. Verse 7, And I said, after she had done all these things, this is God speaking, he said, God said, I said, after she had done all these things, Turn thou unto me. But she returned not, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. So that term played the harlot comes up in verse 6 and again in verse 8. And there is immorality in these cultures, but this is talking about spiritual adultery. 
So what is that first symptom of a backslidden Christian that we see in these three verses, 6, 7, and 8? The first symptom. Yeah, false gods. They know who the true God is, but they choose false gods. And in verse 7, God said to his people, turn, come back to me. Uh, you've wandered away, come back to me. And it said, she returned not. So there's a conscious decision to follow after other gods rather than to stay close to the true God. Now, most of the other symptoms are related to this one. So to me, this is the foundational symptom. Have you ever been to the doctor and they say, okay, what's the problem? Well, I have a cough or I've got a fever or you know, abdominal distress, whatever. And, and what you really want them to do is find out what the root cause is. And they'll say something like, well, just take a couple of ibuprofen. I say to my doctor, well, why am I feeling this way? I Don't worry about it. You'll get better. That always worries me when my doctor tells me that because I want to know what the root cause is. Here's the root cause of their spiritual backsliddenness. They know who the true God is. It's not that they don't know who he is, and they've, they've left him. They've turned back. This is why, this is the reason, think about this, this is the reason we don't call unbelievers backslidden. Right? We don't say, that's boy, that guy, he's just not saved, and he's backslidden. You can't be backslidden when you're not a Christian, because you don't know God. You're not one of his children. You haven't left him. You never were part of his family. So backslidden is a term we use with Christians who they know who the true God is, but they've left God to follow other gods. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. It came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah had not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly, saith the Lord. Now, he's, God's using uh, historical events here. Remember, Israel was conquered and deported, exiled first. And that should have been a warning to Judah that God was serious about punishing idolatry. But when Judah saw what happened to Israel, God says that Judah, she, was treacherous. And she did not return to the Lord. Instead, it says, verse 10, not turned, Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly, saith the Lord. Now, what's to feign? We don't use this word much anymore. What does it mean to feign? Someone besides uh, Sheila, Sheila's done a great job. I'm trying to get other people involved here. John, what does it mean to feign? Half hearted, fake, not sincere. Fake, not sincere, pretend. Just show. Yeah. They, they, they show it, but that doesn't really mean it. Now, think of it. I, I know this is going back in time for all of us, but think about when you were a little kid, you had a fight with a sibling, and your mom said you have to say you're sorry. Yeah. And you knew you had to say you're sorry, but you didn't mean it. So I said, I'm sorry. And maybe your mom, you know, nope, say it again, you know, I'm sorry. But but you there's no there's nothing in your heart that says I'm sorry. It just comes out of your mouth. That's what Judah had done. They pretended, they faked it, they insincerely said, yeah, we're going to turn back to God, but they hadn't really. This explains, by the way, the reason that the nation goes, the, the nation of Judah goes from a godly king like Hezekiah 
Who remembers the next king after Hezekiah? Manasseh. Is Manasseh a good king or a bad king? A bad king. The worst. John's right. How can you go from a good king, Hezekiah, to the worst king, Manasseh? Here's the reason. Even in times of great revival, many of the Jews were not sincere in their relationship with God. They were just faking it. So when the next king came along and said, hey, let's go worship other gods, they were like, sure, why not? After this comes in the days of Josiah, verse 6 tells us that. Josiah is a good king. The nation is blessed. God blesses the nation. The next king, Jehoahaz, he only reigns a few months. He's a wicked king. The king after him, Jehoiakim, he's also a wicked king. How can we go from having a good king, Josiah, to a handful of wicked kings? Because again, the people are pretending. They're faking. And so what is another symptom of a backslidden Christian? The world comes in. Say that again, remember? The world comes in. Yeah, the world comes in. But what do we show on the outside when we're backslidden? Yeah, this insincere, yeah, I, I, I want to serve. I want to, I, you know, I want to be a part of this church. Yeah, I want to do things. Think of, hold your place in Jeremiah and turn to uh, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at the church at Ephesus here. I want you to notice something about the church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, verse 1, under the, church, under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now I want you to notice verses 2 and 3, all the good things that the angel says about the church at Ephesus. The good things. Verse 2, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hath borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hath labored, and hast not fainted. A couple of words come up several times there, this idea of work or labor, and this idea of patience. This is a hard-working, persistent church. But they've got a problem. And it tells us what the problem is in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Not lost it. Didn't go anywhere. Didn't just fall behind. They left it. So here's the second symptom that we see of a backslidden Christian from Jeremiah 3.10. He's going through the motions of serving God. He made me very busy. But we do not find a love for God in his heart. In fact, I'm convinced, in my experience, sometimes as a Christian leaves his love for God, he throws himself into the ministry so that he can appear to be spiritual. Maybe he even goes to his pastor and says, hey, I want to take on more responsibility. Not because he loves God, not because he wants to serve God, but he wants to show something to everyone else. So, you can have a very busy Christian who's backslidden. Because in his heart, there's no relationship with God that drives his service. He's just putting on a show. And that's what I need to be careful of. That's what you need to be careful of. I mean, I'm a pastor. If I were to call you and say, hey, let's say I call John and 
Kurt and I said, hey guys, um, Rick, I said, hey guys, I'm not going to come to church for a few weeks. Boy, you'd be knocking on my door. You'd be calling me, Pastor, what's wrong? So I, I, I don't have that option. But I can still not have a relationship with God in my heart and keep very busy in the ministry and be a backslidden pastor. We can have backslidden Christians that are busy, but they're not, but it's not real, it's not sincere. Um, let's compare Jeremiah 4, verses 1 and 2, with uh, Jeremiah 5, verse 2. And I want you to see that what they say is the same thing, but it doesn't come from their heart. In Jeremiah 4, the next chapter over, If thou wilt return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me, and if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of thy sight, then shalt thou not remove. This is a, a promise from God. You won't go into exile. Verse 2, and thou shalt swear, the Lord liveth. Now, turn over to chapter 5 and verse 2. Jeremiah 5, verse 2, and though they say, the Lord liveth. Notice the words are the same in, in chapter 4, verse 2, the Lord liveth. Chapter 5, verse 2, the Lord liveth. But in chapter 5, verse 2, it says, surely they swear falsely. They say the Lord liveth, but they don't mean it with their heart. In chapter 4, verse 2, where God's promising them that if they return, he will prevent them from going into exile. Verse 2 says, And thou shalt swear the Lord liveth in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. So I want you to see that a backslidden Christian can say the right things. He can do the right things. But if his heart is not turned towards God, if he's just faking it, if he's just pretending, he's still backslid. That's why when it comes to Christianity, I don't like this, this term, just fake it till you make it. No, 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 we don't fake anything. Now, I, I do fake it till I make it about things. Don't tell Kenny this, but sometimes I fake it till I make it about this building project. I'll go in there, I'll wander around, oh, this is really interesting. Because I have no idea what it is. And then the electrician will start to explain, oh, that, that's connected over there, and you're going to have, a, oh, that's really good. And then when Kenny comes, they say, hey, they're doing a good job. I mean, look at this. They've connected this over here, and it's, oh, wow, you know about electrical work. I don't say yes, because that would be a lie. But I'm faking it. Don't really know. But when it comes to our Christian life, God doesn't ask us to fake it. He asks us to have a heart that's turned towards him. And then when we say the Lord liveth, it's in truth. It's in judgment. It's in righteousness. It's not this false, yeah, I love the Lord. But in my heart, I don't love the Lord. I don't even care. I'm just putting on a show so that you don't worry about me. So the first, uh, the first symptom of a backslidden Christian, he's forsaking God to follow other gods. We saw that in Jeremiah 3, 7. The second symptom, he's going through the motions, but his heart is not towards God. We saw that in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 10. Judah hath not returned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly, falsely, with, with fakery. With, it, it's the, the, to feign, to be fake, to, to pretend, it's worse than being honest. Because when you're honest, you just say, I don't love God. I don't care. I, I've met people who say they're Christians that have just said, listen, I, I, I've fought with God. I'm tired. I don't want to deal with God anymore. That's not exactly being backslidden. Now, they're wrong. They're in trouble, but they're not faking it. 
It's the Christian who's in his heart says, I don't want to deal with God anymore, but I'm going to keep coming to church and I'm going to keep doing my ministry and I'm going to keep talking about prayer. Of course they don't pray. You can't, you can't be angry and bitter at God and pray effectively. But they'll talk about prayer. They, they may even say, oh, I'm going to pray for you. Why do they say that? So that you feel like they're a spiritual person. But they're not. It's just fake. It's just a front. Um, so that's number two. Here's number three. Let's keep reading. We're in Jeremiah chapter three. Let's, that, let's read verse 11. And the Lord said unto me, so the Lord said to Jeremiah, the backsliding Israel hath justified herself more than treacherous Judah. Why do you think God says the backsliding Israel hath justified herself more than the treacherous Judah in light of what I just taught you from verse 10? This is the example you just gave. Someone that says in their heart they don't follow God, but then they act like they do. And then, as opposed to someone that just says, no, I don't follow God. And they just right. openly. I'm done. Uh, yeah, there's an openness in Judah about their rejection of God. Shoot, there's an openness in Israel about the rejection of God. Judah's faking it. Judah's pretending to return to God, but they haven't returned with their whole heart. I'm going to speak about this more tonight, so I, I don't want to focus too long but you know what God wants us to be he wants us to be honest because he already knows the truth God doesn't need me to be honest because he doesn't really know what's going on and he and he's trying to find out no God knows exactly what's going on in my heart he just wants me to be honest about it okay um, let's keep on reading go this is a chapter 3 verse 12 go and proclaim these words toward the north and say return Thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you. For I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge thine iniquity, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree, and ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord. For I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Notice what verse 13, what, what God's, look at verse 13 again. What is God telling them to do? Only acknowledge thine iniquity, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord, and ye have not obeyed my voice. What do we call that when we acknowledge our iniquity, we acknowledge our sin, we say to God, I haven't been obeying, what do we call that? Confession. What does the backslidden Christian not do? Confess. He doesn't confess his sin. I don't know about you. I can speak for myself. In my time of prayer, what's the time of my prayer that I just want to sort of gloss over and go to the next part? The confession part. I'll, I can take time to praise the Lord, and I can take time to pray for you, and I'm certainly going to take time to pray for me and my family. The confession part's sort of hard, isn't it? Because the confession part is when I look at my own life, my own behaviors, my own attitudes, my own thinking, and I say, God, I've been wrong. Yep. Now, when I say, God, I've been wrong, does God say, oh, I hadn't even noticed? No, no. God knows. He says, I forgive you. He's a merciful God. But he wants me to be honest about where my sin is. And I caught myself in this just this last week. That's maybe why these verses stick out to me so clearly right now. 
you know, I'm just going through life and I'm not trying to be evil, but boy, I'm letting things into my life, as, as Beverly said, worldliness into my life. And then the Holy Spirit says, whoa, stop, what are you doing? And we have two choices when the Holy Spirit brings to our attention some sin, convicts us of something we're doing wrong. We can justify it. We can rationalize it. Well, let me tell you why I'm doing it this way, Lord. You know, you have to understand it's been a hard week or this person was mean to me or we always have a reason. We always have a reason for why we sin. Or if we don't rationalize it, we can confess it. Those are our two options. And so when I find myself rationalizing sin, it's that big red flag that says, stop. What are you doing? God already knows the truth. You're not, you're not pulling the wool over his eyes. Sometimes uh, we talk about plausible deniability. Plausible deniability means you're going to do something you know is wrong, but you're already thinking of ways you can justify it to whatever authority, whether it's your parents when I was younger, or if you have a boss at work or the police officer, right? I'm going to roll through the stop sign, but if I roll through it, I'm going to tell the police officer, it was behind a tree. I didn't see it until it was too late. Right? And in your mind, you're already making excuses for what you're going to do wrong. Plausible deniability. That is, that is iniquity. Iniquity is when I choose to sin. I know it's wrong. I know God says don't do this, and I just do it anyway. Can a person sin in ignorance? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. It's still sin. It's still wrong. God still has to judge sin, even if you do it in ignorance. But iniquity is not sin and ignorance. That's just, I'm going to do this wrong. And God says to his people, only acknowledge thy iniquity. Talk to me. Tell me the truth. Be honest with me. But the backslidden Christian doesn't confess. Okay, let's uh, move on. Um, Verse 15, and I will give you pastors according to... And I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. And it shall come to pass when you be multiplied and increased in the land in those days, saith the Lord, that they shall say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done anymore. Now this one's a little bit odd. Uh, So let's unpack it a little bit. It shall come to pass, when you be multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Why were they saying the ark of the covenant of the Lord? And and, and why was God not pleased with that? He said, you know, there's going to come a day, I'm going to bless you, and you're not going to say this anymore. Now, while you're thinking about that, let me remind you of another story. Back in the book of 1 Samuel, Eli is the high priest. He's got two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And the Israelites are fighting against the Philistines, and the battle's not going well. They're losing. So what do Hophni and Phinehas decide to do to try to turn the battle in the Israelites' favor? Who remembers this story? Bring the ark. Yeah, let's let's go get the Ark of the Covenant from the uh, tabernacle. The temple hadn't been built yet. We're going to get the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle. We're going to bring it down to the battlefield, and that's going to give us added strength, power. I don't know what lasers going to shoot out of it. I don't know what they were expecting, but they were sure. They were sure that if they had the Ark of the Lord, 
that God had to turn the battle in their favor. Good luck charm. Good luck charm. Yeah, an amulet. You know, you, you, people wear these things around their necks. Uh, sometimes I'll notice somebody's jewelry and it'll be odd and I'll say, you know, that's a very interesting. Yeah, I wear this piece of jewelry. I remember a fellow one time, he was wearing this, he had a necklace, and at the end of the necklace was like a crystal, colored crystal. And because he was a man, and because it was so prominently displayed on his chest there, I, I remarked on it and said, yeah, this wards off bad, bad luck. Oh, it turned out he claimed he was a warlock, which is like a witch, but a male witch, and that was his amulet of protection. And that's exactly what they were doing with this Ark of the Covenant. Now, God had promised that his presence would be there at the ark as long as his people honored him. But the ark did not bind God to go where it went and make God work on their behalf. But that's how they were treating it here. Now, I'm going to ask you to skip down here to verses 22 and 23 because I want you to see that they're, what they're doing is they, they, because they've forsaken God, they're still looking for help. In this case, they're looking to the ark of the covenant for help. Let's look at verses 22 and 23. See if you can tell what else they're looking to for help. Return, verse 22. Return, ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Behold, we come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. That's the correct response. I'm going to turn away from my backsliding. I'm going to go back to God. I'm going to be honest with him. I'm going to tell him I've sinned. He's going to forgive me. God is so merciful. Okay, we return unto you. You are our God. That's the correct answer. Here's the incorrect answer, verse 23. Truly, in vain, is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. That's in vain. It tells us that, in vain. Now, I, I remember reading this passage thinking, now that's odd, because what is it? Psalm 121 says, I will look into the hills from which cometh my strength. My help is from the Lord. That is not the attitude here in these hills in verse 23. You say, how do you know? Because it says, in vain. Truly in vain, to no point, there's no purpose, is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the, what's the next word there? Multitude of mountains. Their hope is, is in their geographic location. Hey, we're up in the hills. There's all these mountains around Jerusalem. And if you've ever had a chance to visit Israel, you know that there's a plain that runs down through um, the Jordan River, that's a smaller valley. There's a big plain that runs through uh, uh, what we call the uh, Esdraelon Valley, sometimes called the Valley of Jezreel, then across the pass there by Megiddo and out into the um, coastal plain. But Jerusalem sits up in a bunch of mountains and hills in the middle of the country. And they were thinking, Babylon's not going to attack us here. We're, we're up here in the hills. That, they're just going to march along the plain and, and get out to wherever the battle is. They're going to leave us alone. And they were trusting in something other than God. I just gave it away. So what, what does a backslidden Christian do? He trusts in something other than God. Whether it's the Ark of the Covenant or whether it's the multitude of mountains, he's not trusting God. That's what God wants him to do. Trust me. Come to me. Talk to me. No, I don't want to do that. Let's, let's bring this application down. What's that going to look like in 21st century American Christianity? What are some of the things, what are some of the religious things we might trust in? We don't have the Ark of the Covenant. If we did, we could be a famous church. We could get this building built if we had the Ark of the Covenant. We don't have that. What do we have 
that similarly, the same way, the same analogy here, the same metaphor, it's like the Ark of the Covenant. It's a religious object or religious thing that we have that we think we can trust in when we don't want to trust in God. Yeah, the cross. Some people wear a cross or a crucifix and, and they feel like somehow that protects them because they're wearing it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Nothing wrong with having a cross in the church. But, our, but our, the cross is a reminder of our crucified and resurrected. Remember, we, we don't have a crucifix. There's no body here. Because Jesus died and rose again. And uh, yeah, so cross, cross, nothing wrong with the cross, but it's not the cross. It's not this physical object that's important. It's that it points to Jesus Christ that's important. That's good. Thank you. What, what are some other things that we might think have some impact in our lives, but they don't? Religious things. Say that again? The church building. Yeah, the building itself. You know, uh, we had a lady come some time ago, a family come actually, and, and the um, the mother, it was a, a husband and wife, and, and the husband's mother, the wife's mother, I forget which, and she came, uh, they came about noon, it was sort of odd, because it was at the end of the service rather than the beginning, and as people were clearing out, she came to the front to pray, and uh, one of the family members said, yeah, my mom likes to go to church buildings to pray. Now, I don't know what they meant by that, so, but the way I understood it was, there's something magical about the building that makes prayer more effective. The truth is, my prayer is not effective based on where I am, is it? Geographically. My prayer is effective based on where my heart is. When my heart is aligned with God's will and God's plan and God's uh, uh, emotions, then, of course, God answers my prayers because we agree. When I have my own plans and I tell God, hey, you've got to do it this way, that's when I get disappointed. Yeah, the, the building itself. Have you ever had someone say this to you? I don't know why all this bad stuff has happened to me. I've been going to church. I don't know why all this, I don't know why I'm having financial trouble. I give in the offering. Now, again, you ought to attend church services. Come join us when we come to worship, and please give in the offering as the Lord leads you. But those actions in and of itself are not magic amulets that protect, protect you from any trouble. And when you find your heart saying, and by the way, I, 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 this was mine. I've been a good missionary on the mission field. And it was as if God said, well, what does that have to do with anything? Are you earning brownie points that you get to cash in? You ever gone to one of those arcades or a, or a fair and they give you the tickets when you win games and if you collect 10 tickets, you get a little prize. You collect, sometimes we treat God like we're collecting tickets. And then when we want something from God, we get to cash in our tickets and say, well, I, boy, I haven't missed a Sunday for a whole year. Yep. Therefore, I get. That's not how Christianity works. Yep. Now, I, I want you to be close to the Lord, but the backslidden Christian doesn't want to be close to the Lord. He wants to cash in his chips. He wants to tell God what to do because I've done what I should do. Now, God, you've got to do it. I want you to do it. It's not how this works. But that's the Ark of the Covenant type of thinking. We can make God do it our way. What are some other things that Christians look to that would be analogous, that would be similar to trusting in the hills and the multitude of mountains, trusting in their geographic location? Yeah. The Ten Commandments. Yeah. Keeping the Ten Commandments somehow earns me these credits with God. that I, I get to cash them in. I, I've kept your commandments. 
by the way, I want you to keep the Ten Commandments. If I said to you, it's okay, go ahead and murder people, you'd say, what? You can't do that. And you'd be right. But just the fact that I haven't murdered anyone doesn't make me a good Christian. <laughs> the one that I always laugh at is someone who says, well, I've been a good father. I'm glad you've been a good father. I want you to be a good father, but that doesn't mean you somehow become, you get these extra points to tell God what to do. So yeah, we can trust in our location in the United States. Right here, I, I live in the U.S. What, what bad can happen to me in the U.S.? Now I am, we can be very grateful we don't live in a country like Syria that's been torn for 15 years now by this incredibly murderous civil war. But our hope is not in our country. Our hope is in the Lord. I, um, yeah. Let, let's move on here because I'll, I want to finish. I got a few more to go here. Um, let's go ahead and go down to chapter four now. If thou wilt return, Jeremiah 4 1. If thou wilt return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me. And if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of my sight, then shalt thou not remove. You won't be sent into exile, God says. And thou shalt swear the Lord liveth in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. And the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among the thorns. Now let's ask ourselves the question, what is fallow ground. This is an agricultural term. Yeah, it's agricultural land that has not been used. I don't know the specific um, cycle here in our Solano County, but in some places they'll plant wheat for two years and then they leave it fallow for a year. They don't plant anything. They do that? Okay. Yeah. I, I've heard about this. Now, what they try to do, because they want to use the land, is they try to rotate their crops so there's not as much fallow ground. But it was very common in uh, the time of Israel to have fallow ground. Land that was there, that was available for agricultural use, but it was not being used. So when God says to us, and this is not the only place, he also says it in the book of Joel, break up your fallow ground. What is he telling us to do? Witness to people. Let's, yes, uh, Sheila, I don't disagree with that. Let's generalize it a little bit more before we get to specific applications. When God says to break up your fallow ground, remember, fallow ground is agriculturally productive ground. Could be used. Nothing wrong with it. It doesn't have a bunch of rocks in it. It's not on a hillside. It isn't poisoned. It's potentially fertile ground. But what does fallow ground lack? What does it need? Water. It needs water and it needs work. It needs water and it needs it needs some, some some effort, some toil put in, and it needs to be watered. And then you can have a whole crop there. When God says, break up your fallow ground, what is he telling us to do? Generally, you're right. Witness to people, yes, amen. Just generally, what, what is he encouraging us to do? Yeah, I think there's the first attitude is to get rid of the hard heart that we have. Because we tell ourselves we can't use that ground. There's a reason it's lying fallow. We tell ourselves we can't use that ground. We can't, we don't have enough time, water, I don't know. We, we, we just, we can't. We can. If we could use that, if we were using that ground, it wouldn't be fallow, right? 
So we're telling ourselves, first of all, there's some reason we can't use it, and we need to repent of our hard-heartedness. Now, I, 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 I agree with Kurt so strongly because the next verse, verse 3 says, verse 4 says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart. And that term to circumcise yourselves, when he uses it in a spiritual context, almost always refers to repenting, setting aside our pride, and, and agreeing with God. So we need to repent, and we need to put in the work that's necessary to use that fallow ground. Now, just in general, I think most of the time the ground is fallow because, frankly, we don't think we can use it. It's those things in the Christian life that God calls us to do, and we say, no, I can't do that. Now, just in general. Now, Sheila mentioned a specific instance. How many times has God said to you, I know this happened to me, you need to go talk to that person. You need to witness to that person. You need to tell that person about Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're in a conversation. And the Holy Spirit says, okay, here's a good place to point out that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you say, no, no, I'm not going to say anything because it won't matter. Or what if they ask me a question? Or I don't know what is they're going to say. And, and so we don't take advantage of that opportunity to be a witness because of one of these excuses. And that ground stays fallow. It doesn't get broken up. It doesn't get used. Witnessing is a specific example, but even in, in, in the ministries of the church, sometimes people, I ask people if they'll help. And if, if I've asked you to help recently and you've said, no, I'm not talking to you specifically, but sometimes I ask people to help in a specific way. And you, uh, and I'm going to be a little bit... Um, this has never happened that I remember, but let's imagine. I say, can you help in the kitchen? We need some help setting up for our food and fellowship meals. Somebody says, no, I, I don't think I can do that. Well, why not? I'm just not good with food. <laughs> There's always an excuse. Doesn't always make sense to me as a pastor why they can't help. And so sometimes that ground just lies fallow because they're not willing to put in the effort that's needed. But there's a second aspect that John brings up that he's right about. Fallow ground needs work, and fallow ground needs water. In the Bible, and specifically several times here in, in uh, Isaiah and in Jeremiah, what is water a symbol of? Life and? The Word. The Word and? The Holy Spirit. Right? Out of his belly, John chapter 7, shall flow rivers of living water. This spake he concerning the spirit, it says. Isaiah chapter 43, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty. I will pour floods upon the dry ground. And then I'm paraphrasing. The next verse says, I will pour my spirit upon your children. Fallow ground requires our effort and it requires the Holy Spirit to work. And the Holy Spirit often is just waiting for us to put out some effort. But if we don't put out the effort, that land, that ground, that land is going to remain fallow. Yep. And backslidden Christians, so so let's bring it back to back, backslidden Christians. What's a symbol, uh, not a symbol, a symptom. What is another symptom of a backslidden Christian? Yeah, not witnessing, not being willing to step out of his comfort zone. And do what God calls them to do and allow the Holy Spirit to work. We get in our comfortable, I do, as a pastor. 
I get into a comfortable place, what works for me? What I'm used to, what's comfortable, what I like, and those things I'll do again and again and again and again. But then someone will come along, and the Holy Spirit will use a person or maybe a, somebody else preaching or maybe a book I'm reading to say, hey, why don't you take a step of faith here and do this? Witness to somebody. Give a little bit more in the offering. Uh, I'm talking as a pastor, you know. Sometimes God calls me to give too, right? So give a little bit more in the offering. Or, or how about start another ministry of the church? God's given you some, some people and some buildings here. Maybe we need this other ministry. And you know what I say? You know, Lord, I'm just not comfortable with that. Or maybe I say to the Lord, I just don't have time for that. Or I say to the Lord, well, that's, that's hard. Now, if the Lord's calling us to do it, he's going to supply. So the question is not whether I like it or not, or whether I'm comfortable with it or not, or whether it's going to work or not. The question is, what is God calling me as a pastor to do and how to lead the church? Same thing is true for you. The backslidden Christian won't consider what God is calling him to do. He's only going to stay in that comfort zone where, where he's comfortable. Let's uh, keep reading, and um, we're going to skip down to verse 22. For this, for my people, this is Jeremiah 4, verse 22, for my people is foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish children. Sottish is, is, is mentally impaired. They're, they're stupid. They're sottish children. And they have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. What symptom of backslidden Christianity do we see here? Yeah, you're not reading your Bible. You're right. What are you doing instead? He, he, he says not only are they not knowledgeable about this, but they do have knowledge. What is their knowledge in, according to chapter 4, verse 22? Well, across the street, he and I go there to talk. I constantly get there. He's a good man. He has sure. Word word there. He used to be a Christian, and I said, there's no such thing as used to. You don't go to church Amen. Now. And he gets mad when I do this, and I do it back. <laughs> do you do it just to irritate him? No, I started Very well could be he's backslidden, yeah. But look at verse 22 again. They do have they do know something. They're wise about something. What are they wise about here? Evil. Evil. The backslidden Christian, instead of getting to the core of what is righteousness, is he's nibbling about at the edges of wickedness. Now he's probably smart enough not to just throw himself wholeheartedly into evil. But he certainly is interested in it. Because he's wise, it says, to do evil. But to do good, they have no knowledge. Now, boy, the applications of this are numerous, so I'm probably not going to hit yours. But I'll be frank, um, for many, many Christians that I know, the internet ends up becoming a black hole that sucks their attention in, and we're not usually looking for what's good and what's God-honoring on the internet. Now, you can use the internet wisely. I, I Multiple times, 
don't tell Rick this, but I've looked on the internet for how to fix my car, right? How to, I had a mirror get broken off. One of my children hit, hit, hit the side mirror and, and broke it. How to replace the mirror. It was an easy fix, it took me about 10 minutes. But I didn't know how to do it. The internet's great for things like that. So I don't want to say the internet's evil. The internet is not evil. I'm evil. My heart is evil. I can end up on places on the internet I should not be. You should be aware that there are two uh, uh, ballot measures coming up here in California. One is uh, Proposition 26 and one is Proposition 27. And both of those increase the amount of gambling in our state. And I'm just going to go on the record. I God does not want us to gamble. And frankly, if we look at our, our unsafe friends, non-Christian friends, does gambling help them? No. It takes away from them. So on the issue of gambling, we are against gambling. The internet facilitates all kinds of gambling. And I can, I can spend time gambling on the internet and, and be why I... Boy, what if I could tell you all the odds for today's NFL games? Would you be worried about me? You ought to be worried about me. If I'm wise about what gambling, the odds are in gambling, and I don't know my Bible, I could be saved. I, um, Alice's neighbor probably is a Christian, but you can be backslidden to the point you don't even recognize what good is in you. And you're wise to do evil, but to do good you have no knowledge. We just gotta, we've got to guard ourselves. Your problem may be different than my problem. Before the internet, it was a library. You know, I'd go to the library. I love libraries, I love books. You know how much evil you can find in a library? You wanna look for it? A lot of evil in the library. A lot of good in the library too. It's what you're looking for. That's my point here. And when you're a backslidden Christian, you're looking, if you're not looking for the exact piece of evil, you're certainly nibbling around the edges. When we would go fishing, as a young boy, we'd do a lot of bait fishing. I was a young boy. My dad, of course, would take us. We'd put an egg or we'd put a worm. And specific, uh, uh, particularly when we used worms. Um, you know, they show, like on a cartoon or a show, they'll show you put a whole worm on the hook. But my dad said, don't put a whole worm on the hook. The smart fish will eat all of the worm around the hook and never put his mouth on the hook. So what we would do is we'd take half of a worm and you literally just run that hook right up through the worm's whole body. So just about any part that the fish might try to eat, he's going to have to bite on that hook. But sometimes as you're out there fishing, bait fishing like that, you'll see that the tip of the pole just goes down a little bit. Just not, not much, just a little bit. Just a little bit. And I'd say, Dad, Dad, I, I think i got to fish. He'd say, just wait, son. Just wait. When the pole goes down really good, that's when you give it a yank. And you set the hook in that fish's jaw so that you can bring it in. He's just nibbling around the edges right now, my dad would say. But you wait. He's going to take that hook in his mouth. And as Christians, that's what happens when we're in the backslidden state. We're nibbling around the edges of evil. We're just trying it out. I mean, it could be gambling. It could be pornography. It could be, it could be all kinds of wickedness. We're just nibbling around the edges. We convince ourselves it's okay it's not really sin, but I, I tell you, from personal experience, and more importantly, from knowing the Word of God, at some point you bite down on that hook, and Satan, he's crafty, he sets that hook, and now you, you're, you're, you're on his line. 
Now, God is gracious and he can get us off those hooks. And we can help each other, get each other off the hooks. But the backslidden Christian, he is wise to do evil. He's nibbling around the edges instead of focusing on what is righteous. Now let's go all the way back to the beginning, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6, 7, and 8. What did we say was the core symptom of the backslidden Christian? What is the core, the, the central thing that the backslidden Christian is doing that leads to all these other symptoms? Go ahead. Yeah, he's left the true God to follow false gods. He's forsaken. He's he knows the true God. That's why we say that. That's why I said earlier there are no backslidden heathen. Heathen don't know God. Your unsaved neighbor probably doesn't even know God. But there are Christians who know God, and they say, "No, I don't want Him. I want something else." And that's what leads to all these other symptoms. So here's, if I can leave you with one piece of advice. To avoid being a backslidden Christian, it is guard your heart. I'm not telling you to watch your actions because you can pretend for a long time. I'm not telling you to be careful about attending worship because a lot of people attend worship. I'm, I'm convinced, of, I'm not saying necessarily at Elmira, praise God, but a lot of people are going to be in a, in a building today meeting with other Christians, worshiping God, and they're backslidden. They're only going to keep up the show. We have to guard our heart. I can't see your heart. I, can, I wish sometimes we could put a little window into our chest here and people could look into our heart and say, hey, pastor, boy, you, you got some cleaning to do this week, don't you? We can't. I can only see your actions, and your actions can look great, and you can be backslidden. You can be busy and be backslidden. You can say, hey, I'm going to pray for you, and you can be backslidden. So watch your heart. Guard your heart. Let's pray, and then we'll uh, end our Sunday school uh, class. Thank you, Father, for the, the blessing of your word. It, it does speak to me, even this week. And thank you, Father, for bringing these folks out. We've got a lot of sick people among the members and friends of Elmira Baptist Church, and I lift up to you, particularly Larry and Anita Jacobs. Scotty, he's ill, and others, Father. Uh, pray for Doyle. He has been sick. I understand he's He's starting to feel better. I pray you protect him. So many that are ill, though, Lord, and I ask that you would bring a measure of healing. That during this time of infirmity, may they discover afresh, not some new truth, but the, the faithful, foundational truth that your grace is sufficient for all things. And I pray that you provide, yes, for their physical needs, but also may they draw close to you May they make time to spend in prayer, seeking you, not relying on primarily doctors or medicine to heal, although that's help, but, but looking to you. And I pray for all of us that are here this morning, that you would use these symptoms to reveal to me and to my hearers any evidence, any symptoms of that backsliding, so that we can deal with you, we can be honest with you, we can tell you what the truth is. And you can deal with us. You're a forgiving God. You're a merciful God. And we thank you for that. Now we pray that you bless our time of worship. And we ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.